Want to learn some easy ways for busy moms to involve the whole family in helping to save our environment? Wondering why you should care about environmental sustainability in the first place? Or how to talk to your kids about climate change without scaring them? In this episode of Brainy Moms, Terry and I interview Shannon Brescher Shea, author of the book, Growing Sustainable Together, Practical Resources for Raising Kind, Engaged, Resilient Children, about her life's work in environmental activism and her passion for helping parents train up a generation of kids who care about our world. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Brainy Moms. I'm Dr. Amy Moore, here with my co-host, Terry Miller, coming to you today from Colorado Springs, Colorado. Our guest today is parenting and environmental sustainability writer, Shannon Brescher Shea. Shannon is the author of the Environmental Parenting Advice book, Growing Sustainable Together, Practical Resources for Raising Kind, Engaged, Resilient Children. She's also a science writer, parenting blogger, and longstanding environmental activist. She lives in the Washington, D.C. suburbs with her husband and two children. Hi, Shannon. So glad you're here with us. Thank you. So glad to be here. Well, I'm super intrigued, and I'm sure our listeners are too, um, about your topic, your area of expertise, environmental parenting advice. And um, yeah, I can't wait to hear more about that. Before we even launch into that, though, tell me a little bit about your personal story. How did you get on the road to where you are today doing that as your passion? Yeah, absolutely. It goes back to, in fact, when I was a little kid in third grade, I kind of call it my origin story, like a superhero, you know, um, <laughs> Love that. we went to Homosassa Springs State Park in Florida, um, which is a manatee conservation area. And we were, you know, walking around and they have this big box that goes that you walk down the stairs and basically look at the manatees out through a plexiglass window. It's as if you're in the aquarium, not the manatees. And I just fell in love with the manatees. They come over and they look at you and they're really cute. And they're just, they have this look of innocence to them. And then on the same day, I found out that they are endangered. And so the idea that like these animals could possibly never exist anymore, you know, just totally broke my heart as a, you know, nine or 10 year old. And, um, so I decided I wanted to do something about it. And that's when I really, even though I had always loved nature, I'd been outside a lot. That's when I really started being interested in the environment as something to actively protect, to actively work with, to actively, um, you know, not just passively enjoy, but um, care about as its own thing, separate from what we could use it for. Mm -hmm. um, and then as I got older, I kind of hooked in the social justice aspect and realizing that the communities that are most affected by things like climate change, like air pollution, um, like water pollution, are also the ones that are the most affected by racial injustice, by economic injustice. Um, and so that became a really core part of my environmental interest as well. So when I became a mom, I realized that was not something that I was going to give up. This was my life's passion, but I needed to find ways to adapt it to my new lifestyle. Um, and one of the things, one of the stories I tell in the book is about how I had a lot of both what I call green guilt, which is feeling like you're not doing enough environmentally, you're making too much garbage, or you're driving too much, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and mom guilt, which I'm sure everybody is familiar with, because, you know, it's very common in society. And they 
kind of wrestled with each other. I would feel like, well, if I'm doing environmental things, I'm taking away from time with my kids. Or if I'm doing these things with my kids, I can't go to a protest or I can't work on the garden or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I asked um, for my blog, I did a series of interviews with other people who consider themselves green moms. And one of the questions I asked is how do you deal with this conflict? And all of them said there is no conflict. And I was really confused by this because I felt it all the time. I felt this pull all the time. And one day I was sitting downstairs on a beanbag in my basement reading a different parenting book. And I realized that the people I was talking to were right. And I literally closed the book and sat up and you know, you could see the cartoon light bulb uh, above my head because I realized that well, this is particularly difficult when your kids are infants and toddlers, especially as they get older. And even back in the, those toddler years, the environmental activities that we involve our kids in, whether that's gardening or biking and walking places instead of driving or doing activism or volunteering in your community, all teach the kinds of values and skills, not just the values, but the skills that at least I wanted my kids to have. And I think a lot of other people want their kids to have things like kindness, engagement and connection with your community, responsibility, um, uh, skills like um, executive function um, that we need to be able to what I call be good citizens in the world, to care about things outside of yourself. And so that's what motivated me to write the book was I felt like I had this light bulb moment. Other people were struggling with those same sorts of doubts and could appreciate knowing not just why that those doubts were not to say unfounded because, you know, I understand why they're founded, but that to, to help resolve some of those doubts and find the actual proof of it. It wasn't just something that I came up with that I thought was true in my life, but actually like played out in um, you know, expert interviews and in observations I made of other people and other people's kids. And then even in the social science literature, um, my background is in like looking at the social science literature, like psychology and sociology and communications. And I was able to dig into that, which I know most people don't have uh, either the capability or the time to do so because it's very dense. Um, so I was happy to be able to bring that to people. So I want to I wanna go to the foundational aspect of what you do for a couple minutes. Um, environmental sustainability. For our listeners who don't really even understand that term, can you explain what that is and why is it even important? Why should we care? Yeah, absolutely. Environmental sustainability is being able to do something over a long period of time without it causing harm or using up resources that cannot be, you can't get more of. Um, so using fossil fuels, uh, for example, which are like coal and oil and gas uh, and natural gas is not are not sustainable because one, there's no more there's no more being produced of them. We can get more out of the ground, but it's getting harder and harder to do so. And even getting out of the ground has huge um, consequences. For example, oil spills can contaminate people's water. Then the process of using them also produces greenhouse gases that accelerate climate change that lead to things like stronger wildfires start more often and stronger hurricanes as we've seen, um, longer and more severe droughts that affect things like groundwater and people's drinking water. Um, and uh, also things like very strong heat waves, which people don't really 
think of until they happen, but they can be deadly, especially for people who don't have air conditioning or elderly folks who are more, and, and, and young kids who are more sensitive to the heat. So environmental sustainability is a matter of, you know, protecting, you know, protecting the home we live in, but it's also the only place we have. And if we don't, it has, you know, massive effects on the ecosystems we, we rely on for food, for housing, for water, for all of these really basic essential things. And it has the biggest effects on the people who are already hurt the most by, you know, other kinds of injustices in our society. Right. Yeah. Economic struggles, like you mm-hmm. said, racial injustice. Yeah. Yep. I want to, I want to come back to um, when you were just kind of talking about your story. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, like when you when your kids were first born, when you first became a mom and you were just kind of overwhelmed with uh, the day to day, just practicality. And man, does that resonate? Mm -hmm. And so as a busy mom for our listeners, as a busy mom, I I know um, for me personally, I want my kids, I want to have um, an environmental sustainability mindset mm-hmm. in my home, even little things like reduce, reuse, recycle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want to have that mindset that we have the separate trash can and the separate recycling and the separate uh, compost. And yet there are lots of times and I'm better now because my kids aren't little, but especially when they're little, there are lots of times where day after day, I say, I do not have time. I'm too busy. I've got it get their lunch made. I've got to get to this next thing. You know what? That peanut butter thing, I'm not washing out. It's going in the trash. I'm not going to do the effort to put it in recycling. And so that's a challenge that we face as moms. So talk to us about that and how you have made that a part of your life. Yeah. Um, a big part of it is finding the things that you care about and that you enjoy doing. Um, you know, maybe washing out that peanut butter container and that have a big impact also. Washing out that peanut butter container is one, a pain, and two, most plastic actually doesn't get recycled anyway. So unless you're using glass, probably doesn't make that big of a difference. Sorry. Um, so picking things that are both personally meaningful to you and have as big of an impact as possible and that you can integrate cleanly into your life. Um, A great example is right now we have just started biking to school, which I had never been able to do before with my kids because um, I was, I was at work. I had a really long commute. I took transit, but it was still like an hour long. Um, And so I left way before the kids went to school. My husband's not a big bicyclist, um, but with me at home and us a little like iffy about the school bus with COVID, we're like, Ooh, we'll reduce another source of risk. And so we've started biking. I started biking my kids to school. Um, my kindergartner rides in the back of my bike and my um, eight-year-old takes his own bike. And it's been amazing. It fits into the schedule. You know, they got to get to school somehow. It don't, they only leave like five minutes earlier than if they took the bus. Um, it gets everybody exercise. My um, younger son has some struggles with attention and with emotional regulation. Biking is like a miracle drug for him. It's helps so much. He's in a much better mood when he comes home, when he gets to school. We had the world's worst morning the other day. And by the time he got to school, we were all like far more relaxed, far more grounded and just able to like get on with things. And so finding those things that benefit us in ways that aren't just sustainability, but also like personally 
um, and that and that you enjoy is like the really sweet spot because you're going to find time to do those things because you like them, because you see the benefits. It's not just sustainability as an add-on, as this nice thing you do when you have time. It becomes part of your entire life um, and part of your entire like way of, of looking at the world. And that's one of the reasons I wrote that book, wrote the book was to show people what those other benefits were in addition to sustainability being a nice thing to do because it's a nice thing to do. But the fact that it has benefits on your kid's behavior and on your own behavior too. I know I'm way more focused at work when I get to bike the kids to school. Can you give us a, give us two or three more examples of sure practical things mm-hmm. that as moms, we can begin to make a part of our lifestyle that are more impactful than who knew I'm wasting my time cleaning out the peanut butter jar? Sorry, okay. yeah. <laughs> what else? What, what else can we do? I, I really hesitate to give specific examples for people's lives because I don't know their lives, right? Like, um, but, you know, going out and picking up garbage when you go for walks in the evening, you know, instead of um, going to, you know, Right now, COVID limits our activity so much, but um, going for a walk in the evening instead of maybe some other activity you'd have to drive to and then picking up garbage along the way shows your kids that, you know, you value um, your local community. You want it to be clean. You want to protect the animals there. You want to protect the water there because that can actually be a big water hazard. Um my kids and I went and did participate in a local stream cleanup uh, for a couple of years and they love it. And they remember, it gives them a sense of place. They remember that like, you know, when we help clean up the stream that at this park we go to all the time. And so there's like an investment in the community there and a connection. Um, so that's a pop stream and beach cleanups are really popular with a lot of people. Um, in terms of everyday activities, uh, I think composting is actually a great one. Um, composting can drastically reduce your um, the amount of waste you you throw out. Um, it's relatively easy. It doesn't take that much time. Um, you have to buy a composter. That's really the only thing that, you know, in terms of investment and kids enjoy doing it. You can remind them like, hey, which one does this go in? Um, do we put in the compost? Do they can help put stuff in the composter, rip up newspapers. A lot of little kids like especially ripping things and being allowed to rip stuff instead of being yelled at for ripping stuff is really powerful. And then you also get to teach them about ecology in it and how like the bacteria and um, the fungus break down stuff and then you get to use it in your yard or your garden. Um, so that's another one. There's like kind of multiple benefits associated with it that are things that people can just do at home as part of their everyday lives. So but like I said, it, it depends on the person. Yeah. Absolutely. And your interests um, yeah, exactly. and your comfort level too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, some people yeah. don't even know where to start. And so they probably want to start small and then, mm-hmm. you know, add yep. to that. Um, exactly. What about the mentality that um, other people are going to do this, so why should I? And how can how can we, as one family, impact this? I mean, really, how much difference can one family make? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, in terms of you know what we sometimes call the climate crisis, uh, we need all hands at deck. Like it's the sort of thing that you can't just rely on other people to do because other people won't if nobody starts, right? Um, one of the real principles I talk about in my book is try to do small actions with big impact, do things that other people see that um, not in like a self-righteous way, but, you know, if nobody in your community, and I know with COVID right now, this is hard, but as an example, if 
people in your neighborhood don't take the bus and they don't see anybody like you or like them taking the bus, they're probably not going to take the bus. But once they, you taking the bus becomes normalized and then maybe you go to a meeting where they're talking about cutting the bus routes and you're like, no, I use the bus. My kids use the bus. You know, my kids are able to get to the mall, which they'd have to drive otherwise. I'd have to drive them otherwise. Um, then it becomes normalized and it becomes things that other people notice. Um, I hate to keep going back to biking, but that's what I'm, my mind's on lately. Somebody that yesterday, after we had that miserable morning, um, as I was biking, she's like, oh, you do that every day. You're such an inspiration. And I didn't think anybody noticed, you know, but people at the school are saying, oh, that's a cool cargo bike. I don't, what kind of thing is that? You know, oh, maybe I should start biking. So people, if you do things that are visible, if you have you know, solar panels on your roof and you have a sign that says where you got your solar panels, that is actually contagious. Other people will notice, will be more likely to do it. So if you can do things in ways that other people notice and then, um, you know, build on it even further, if there's things that keep you from doing those things, or if there's things that you would help other people do them, you're then more motivated to change the systems that then make it easier to advocate for sidewalks in your neighborhood or to advocate for local composting for people who can't do composting in their backyard or to, um, you know, to even go to an environmental protest or something like that. And so it becomes this, yes, one individual action doesn't make a difference, but it becomes the point where you grow and other people notice and you come together as a community and then that makes a difference. Um, you know, we can point to things that because of advocacy I've done, we've seen changes in the community. And that is such an inspiration to kids because so often kids feel like they can't do anything. You have to wait to be an adult to do stuff. And that's actually not true. It's good. I like that point um, because it does give them a sense of purpose mm -hmm. that they don't necessarily get to feel in other areas. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We, I feel like we disempower children a lot in our society and environmental action is one of the ways we can actually empower them. And that's, I mean, that's such a, such a basic psychological need, like the number one yep. psychological need is to have impact on our world. Yeah. And what you're, what you're talking about here, I think is so important because it's helping our kids. It's building them up psychologically, mm -hmm. building up their health and well-being yeah. to help them understand you can have an impact on your world and the world mm -hmm. with these I love that small actions, small activities or small actions with big impact. I wrote it down what you said. That's really great. I want to talk about gardening. Yeah. Okay. So I know a lot of listeners, this is just like me. A lot of listeners, you're like, yeah, right. I have time for gardening. Forget that. I'll do that when my kids are grown and gone. When I'm an old lady, then I'll garden. Yeah. But I love on your website, um, you talk about planting a vegetable garden with your kids mm -hmm. and you have um, a picture of you holding a book and the top of it just caught my attention. Perfectly timed gardening. It's a week by week vegetable gardener's guide, but perfectly timed gardening because I think that's what we're overwhelmed with. Mm -hmm. Where do we start? Where do we find information? Do we really have time for this? It's going to take too much time. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about just getting started, small time yeah. gardening from a mom's perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually learned from um, some folks that I did urban gardening with uh, before I became a mom. And one of the uh, people I worked with named Anne-Marie, she said she did uh, lazy gardening. 
And I'm like, that sounds excellent. I am on board with that. Um, so basically, you know, again, this is going to depend on your land situation, especially. I would preface that by saying, I think in terms of gardening specifically, even doing really small things can help start the conversations with your kids that are beneficial. Because honestly, like gardening, like growing your own food is, is great. I love it. We've actually gotten a decent amount from our garden this year, but it doesn't have a huge environmental impact compared to like, you can also buy things from the farmer's market or you can buy things from you know a community farm box that are probably honestly more sustainable than have, growing your own garden. Um, and so on that front, you know, I think what's so valuable about gardening is starting those conversations with your kids about where your food comes from and who grows it and, you know, how do we raise it sustainably and what does that mean? You know, food doesn't just come from the grocery store. So even just growing a basil plant in a pot can start those conversations. So sort of prefacing that, knowing that, you know, you don't have to have a full garden or anything like that. You can plant things in pots, you can plant things in boxes. Um, the key thing for me is to try to make your soil as good as possible. Um, we do a um, tactic, a, a method called lasagna gardening. So it's basically mimics the what happens on the forest floor when lots of leaves and you know dead plants and things like that fall, and then they break down and they create soil. And so that's basically what you're doing on an accelerated time frame. Um, you put down layers of compost, and then we also buy compost. It's like locally composted from the yard waste in our county. And um, we buy straw to like a big straw bale to display our pumpkins on Halloween and then recycle it by putting it in the garden. And then a bunch of leaves that we uh, rake from like our neighbor's yards in our yard. And you pile them up and then and then you leave, we do this in the fall because it's when leaves are available and it takes like, you know, three or four couple hours over a course of, you know, a couple days. Um, and my kids love raking leaves. They love jumping in leaves and raking leaves. And if you're going to rake the leaves anyway, might as well put them in your garden, right? Like that doesn't take that much more time. Um, and, you know, do that. And then that makes the soil good enough that you don't have to do that much work when it comes to the next year. Um, the all the work for us mainly is in the fall to do that preparation and then in the spring to actually like plant the plants. And again, that's something you can get your kids involved in. If you're going to sprout the seeds ahead of time, like if you're growing tomatoes or peppers or eggplant, um, you know, having the kids participate in like planting them in these like little pots and then watching them grow is really a super fun and educational kind of project. Or you can just plant, pick stuff that plant, that grows in the ground and like plant it straight in the ground. Um, and that takes some time, but again, and then you just kind of water it every day. Um, and because you're using that very heavily mulched sort of thing with all those leaves and all that straw, you don't get a, as many weeds. You still get some, you still have to weed some, but it's not the super time intensive, the super energy intensive effort that, you know, some gardening is where you have to like really weed for hours, you know, every week. Um you know, like we were gone for two weeks and left the neighbor kids to water our garden. And it was real bad when we came back. But since then, it hasn't been like once I cleared all that out, it was fine. Um, I, I also have a like, um, let the strongest plant win sort of attitude. And I grow things like tomatoes and squash that all sort of like just overwhelm the weeds. So picking things that are easy is the other thing, you know, beans, um, tomatoes are relatively easy, especially if you buy sprouts from like the farmer's market or from, you know, a home home good story. Don't feel like you have to start all your seeds yourself. You can just buy stuff. It's okay. Um, 
because uh, kids love picking beans. We have purple beans, so they're super fun. They come out purple. Um, basil is really easy to grow. Um, peas can be easy. For some reason, ours have never worked. I don't know. For other people, they say peas are easy. Um, but those are the, the key things is like try to pick a method that's either square foot gardening or lasagna gardening that is limited. Be realistic about what you can do. Don't try to establish a giant garden your first year because you're just going to get frustrated. Start with something small and pick things that are relatively easy to grow and that you'll want to eat because it's useless growing something that you don't want to eat. Um, I grew that kale chard one year. And I, it turns out I hate chard. That was a terrible idea. <laughs> I never grew it again. So um, we, I'm sure we have listeners who live in um, HOA protected neighborhoods mm-hmm. or people that live in the cities. And you mentioned yeah. urban gardening. Mm-hmm. Um, just talk real quick about what are some easy options that you can do in your windowsills or in your kitchen or, you know, on yeah. your patio that don't require you to use ground. Yeah. Um, beans, like I said, are a great one. You just um, put a stick in and have them go up the stick. And that's super fun to watch. Uh, basil is another really good one. Any kind of herbs, uh, most herbs you can grow in pots. Um, there's also community gardens. Um, a lot of cities, uh, this is probably less helpful if you're in an HOA or a place with like strict restrictions on land use. But um, especially in cities, there's a lot of cities with very active community gardens. Um, and you just apply for a space at the beginning of the year, pay, it's usually like maybe 50 bucks for the year. If that, usually it's cheaper. Um, and they let you come and like bring your own stuff and they give you a certain space spot, plot of land. Um, so there are options out there. There's also an increasing number of school gardens. Um, with COVID restrictions, obviously anything with schools right now is a little bit more difficult, but um, a lot of schools are very interested in getting their kids gardening and integrating that into their um, educational, uh, you know, into their teaching. And there's so much you can teach from a garden. You can teach history, you can teach science, you can teach, you know, social studies, you can teach, you know, math, math and measuring. Um, and there's been some really nice studies that I, I quote in my book about how effective integrating gardening is into um, especially STEM subjects. So if you are a parent and your child's school does not have it, a garden yet, would you encourage them to approach the principal and say, I would love to get this started and here's why? Or what does that look like? Yeah, I have a, um, an appendix in the back of the book about how to do school projects. And that's something I'm actually going through right now because I'm trying to, um, back to the biking, um, I'm trying to get uh, my school to be more bike friendly and to offer a bike safety class. So I am experiencing the challenges of this at the moment because I just heard a like, no, we don't want to do that. Or no, we don't have resources. Um, And so we're finding how to get them those resources. Um, I would uh, first, one of the things is sort of, it's good to gauge interest, but also to build a coalition. So if you just say, Hey, I want to start a school garden at the school they're probably going to say, we need a teacher to do that. Or we need, you know, somebody who is part of the school to be in the project. Um, So find out who the most relevant teacher would be, or maybe it's even a facilities manager and talk to them and find out what resources you need, um, what kind of land challenges there are, or if there's, you know, if there's land or not. Um, what and then also work with other parents. Um, a school garden in particular is 
pretty high maintenance um, in terms of like care and feeding and things like who takes care of it when you go on vacation, who takes care of it over the summer, which is when you get most of your, you know, most of your food or you're growing most of your food. Um, and so thinking through those sorts of logistics and having people who are willing to work with you on this project to take different pieces of it is really important before you sort of dive in and are like, oh, I'm going to do this. You know, um, you don't want to go with you know kind of a half-assed idea to the school and then have them turn you down because you didn't think through it well enough. Sure. And this is applicable to the early childhood environment too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean those are year round programs. Um yeah. where oh, yeah. I mean preschoolers yeah. Oh, yeah. love to get their hands dirty like that. And Absolutely. so I've seen super successful um childcare gardens. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. so much that you can learn through that, mm-hmm. as you said. Um, so I want to switch and talk about um, climate change yeah. and how scary that topic can be for children. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about how to start that conversation, what that conversation with our kids would look like. Yeah. Um, it really depends on the age of your kid. If your kid is a preteen, they've probably already heard about it and are getting, you know, like every other preteen subject are getting their information from someone who's not you. So try to get in there. Um, Kids are hearing about this earlier and earlier in school, especially with the news coverage. Um, And then there's kids who are personally affected by it right now. Kids, you know, affected by hurricanes and wildfires and knowing like, you know, that's even scarier, you know? Um, And so I think talking about kids relatively early, um, you know, elementary school age, uh, early elementary school even, uh, can be powerful and effective if you approach it, you know, if you approach it well. And so um, there was a great study in Sweden that was looking at preteens and teenagers and how they dealt with climate change and thoughts about climate change. And they found three groups. They found one that was sort of this emotion focused. They kind of focused on the negative emotions and then shoved them aside and ignored them. And they didn't do anything and they just didn't want to deal with it. And that was not very healthy. Um, And they weren't doing anything either. Like that just resulted in this sort of, you know, denial issue. Um, There was what was called, they called solutions focused, which was kids who are teenagers who tried to solve the problem through their own individual actions, except that actually resulted in a lot of anxiety because nobody can solve this themselves. And you do get the, you know, but what difference does what I do make in the, the grand scheme of things frustration? And then there was a third group that were called, um, I'm blanking on it, Uh, but they basically focused on uh, making meaning, that's what it was, Uh, making meaning out of the work they were doing and things like the relationships they were building through their action and the taking hope in what other people were doing and finding sort of an inherent value in those actions because maybe it let them to be outside or they were finding other benefits. Um, And so it wasn't like, let's fix the world. It was, you know, by ourselves, it was let's find meaning beyond, you know, what this impact is that we may or may not be having for us personally. And that's something we can do for our children. Um, I started talking about climate change with my kids because I talked about it as the reason we were choosing to do things, you know, so it came up organically. Okay, we're not, and I just used it very vaguely at first, you know, I just talked about pollution, Um, you know, why we, you know, why we're, you know, taking the train or why we're, you know, not... um, I'm blanking on things right now, Um, you know, but why we're not driving. And, you know, because we want pollution, because we want to use less 
create less pollution, which then uh, makes cleaner air and water for everyone. So that's a good way to start with really little kids. Um, and I, in fact, brought my um, son, who's now eight, when he was, I think, three or four to a climate change protest. And that's what we explained it to him was we want to make it so everybody has clean air and water. Clean, clean water to use and clean air to breathe. And even really little kids can understand that. Um, so opening those conversations with the explanation as to what you're doing puts that, oh yeah, we're doing something about it at the front rather than the problem at the front. Because I feel like the problem and then what do we do about it? That's the scary part in a lot of ways. Um, and so there's a feeling that, oh yes, the adults care and they're doing something about it. That's very reassuring to kids. And I get to participate. I get to make a difference, um, which is, again, very empowering and kind of, I think, staves off a lot of that despair. Okay. Another way to do it is through storytelling, um, to read books about people who are doing this work. Um, I list some books in my book about um, nonfiction books that talk about kids who are actually approaching this problem or even fictional storytelling. There's um, a really cool story called the, the Tantrum That Saved the World that's actually going into a reprint right now uh, through the same publisher as my book. Um, about a little girl who works together with all these people and animals that are impacted by climate change and are able to then, you know, take action and, and, and do that. And so reading about kids, especially, who are like them taking action can make meaning in another way. So finding these ways to, to take action themselves, read about other people taking action and and storytelling about it and telling them about what their role is, um, I think turns climate change from the scary thing that's happening that we can do nothing about into this thing that yes, we know happens. Yes, we know it's happening, but we are doing something about it. And that's a powerful thing in and of itself. Um, one of the people I interviewed said it was sort of like, you know, um, like, She's a black mom, and she said it was sort of like with racial justice. You know, yes, it's a you can't not acknowledge it. Like it's a problem. Like my kids are going to face this, and we need to be realistic with them about it. But we also talk about you know how we can sort of minimize the impact on us, and then also how what we're doing to change it, and what we're doing to change the system. Okay. Yeah, I'm thinking about practical things like what you're talking about for a kid to learn that they can have impact. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And we happen to be in a state in, in Colorado right now. I'm, I'm looking out the window. The sky is blue, beautiful. It's really nice, but we've had a summer and honestly for the past several years yep. where we up in this mountain town, we usually think that we have this incredible air quality. Well, it's just been wildfires in this yeah. part of the country in the West. Uh -huh. And that's, mm -hmm. it's scary. I've heard yeah. my kids talking about it. I haven't seen the blue sky in seven days. I'm coughing so much. My eyes are red and what's yeah. the world coming to, you know, and they, it's, it's upsetting. And then I'm thinking, yeah. okay, what are practical ways mm -hmm. we maybe can't solve everything about the wildfires right now in the West, but we could on a Saturday afternoon go out to a park. We, we happen to live on some property where we could even do this at our home and do some, I think you call it fire mitigation. Yeah. Pick up, mm -hmm. pick up the dead limb, the, the, um, the dead trees, the dead limbs, you know, start clearing stuff out. Um, we could do those projects in a park, try to look for those opportunities in our town so that we're doing, like you said, small things that can make an impact Mm -hmm. um, kids that, that families that live near water, 
yeah. or near the ocean. And we know the impact that plastics yeah. have on the water and on water life. And so even to make that choice of we're going to have reusable um, bags, grocery bags in our car. And when we get out and run into the store, we're going to tell the kids, oh, oops, forgot the bags. You know what? Yep. We're going to uh, we're gonna have to leave the cart here in the cereal aisle. Come on, you guys. Let's go back to the car and get the bags because this is something we can do to make a difference. Um, and explaining yeah. that why is very powerful. Um, I, you know, kids are, are BS detectors. Um, they know if you walk the, if you talk, but you don't walk the walk. And I think that's one of the biggest things that leads to a lot of cynicism in teenagers is seeing adults telling them, oh yeah, X, Y, Z is important, but then not actually do anything about it. And so if we both do the action and explain the why to our kids, that's really the, you need, you need both. So good. Oh, I'm so inspired. (laughs) I can't tell you how many times I've purchased reusable shopping bags in the store because I've left mine in the car. So yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, happens. which I think is better than using plastic. So right. um, you can never have too many, I guess. <laughs> um, we need to take a quick break and let Terry read a word from our sponsor. Did you know that more than 6 million children in America have been diagnosed with ADHD? Many of them struggle in school because of their condition. What if I told you that poor attention may not be the primary cause of their struggles? In a research study with more than 5,000 people with ADHD, we found their working memory, long-term memory, and processing speed were less efficient than their attention skills. So an intervention that only targets attention might miss the opportunity to work on those other skills we need to think and learn. Learning RX can help you identify which skills may be keeping your child from performing their best. In fact, we've worked with more than 100,000 children and adults who wanted to think and perform better. We'd like to help get your child on the path to a brighter and more confident future. Give us a call at 866-BRAIN-01 or visit learningrx.com. That is learningrx.com. And we're back talking to Shannon Brescher-Shea about becoming more environmentally sustainable as mm-hmm. families. So you've mentioned your book a couple times called Growing Sustainable Together, Practical Resources to Raise Kind, Engaged, Resilient Children. Talk to us more about your book, what kinds of things you talk about, um, how, would, how would moms benefit from getting your book? Absolutely. Um, like, I think anybody who sort of struggles with that, like, I want to be more sustainable, but I have no idea where to start or what to do, and I don't have any time, uh, will definitely benefit in some way. Um, I start out with a definition of, you know, what kindness is, because, you know, parents say that they want their kids to be kind, and yet in a survey uh, that Harvard University did several years ago of, and it was of, of high schoolers, I think it was like, 75% or something of the kids said that they that their parents valued um, either happiness or material success more than being kind, which was just sort of damning. Um, and it's showing that, you know, again, if 
we, we want to say that we want to raise kind kids, then we got to show, show them how to do it. And we've got to demonstrate that in our lives. So I start with like a definition of what that looks like, um, both in terms of values, but then also in terms of those skills, like emotional regulation and um, executive function and things like that, that actually allow us to go do stuff. Um, and then I go into one chapter each of uh, some kind of environmental activity or, or set of environmental activities. Uh, the first one's on sustainable food. I talk largely about gardening, although also about things like farmer's markets. Uh, the second one is on um, using walking, biking, and public transit. So getting yourself around places, transportation that's not in a car. Uh, the third one is on, I'm trying to remember, uh, in, Renewable energy, energy efficiency, and waste of, uh, waste reduction. This is usually what most people think of when they think about being green. Um, and there's a lot of space for it. Uh, but at the same time, I only did one chapter to it because I feel like there's a lot out there already on that and that some of these other topics don't get as much coverage. It's also this thing that I think takes the most time sometimes that is not always the most fun. Um, for example, like washing out, you know, um, recycling. Uh, but can teach your kids really important responsibility if you get them to do some of those things. <laughs> um, uh, I have a chapter on anti-materialism and both on like not just having so much stuff come into our house and then having to deal with those things, um, but then also the whole like life cycle of um, our lifestyle of being less materialistic, you know, wanting to accumulate not just less stuff, but also, you know, worrying less about what other people um, do and think of you. And um, that was that was one of the most striking things in terms of the, the literature, the scientific literature was that being materialistic will basically make you into an un unhappy jerk. Um, and so I think that's something that, again, we all want our kids not to be materialistic, but don't know how to go about it. Um, so I really wanted to address that. Um, another chapter on environmental volunteerism. So getting outside, I talk about, it was interesting you mentioned ADHD because um, getting outside, actually there's some really nice uh, studies showing how it helps kids' attention and memory and all those things that kids both with ADHD and just kids in general sometimes struggle with. Um, and then a uh, chapter on environmental activism and uh, whether that's, you know, working and like talking to corporations and like writing letters to them and things like social media or your local government or even the federal government. And then the last chapter is on talking to kids about difficult issues like climate change, which um, sums up a lot of the stuff that we talked about in our last question. And I've got an appendix uh, about like working with your school on projects. And then each chapter has... Um, sort of this why this is important and what are the benefits through a combination of my own experience observations I've made of like very practical on the ground things like the Washington Youth Garden in DC or you know I, I tagged along with a Boy Scout group that was doing uh, an invasive plant um, clearing uh, social science literature and then it's got a list of very practical tips, or at least I tried to make them very practical. People have told me they are about how to do that thing. And then um, picture book and some chapter book or activity book um, suggestions if you want to like go deeper and then resources if you need more information. Excellent. So Seems good. super comprehensive. Yes. Thanks. Yeah. You also have a really great website. Oh, thank you. That I, I have enjoyed uh, poking around in and read a lot of your blog posts and you guys, listeners, if you are familiar at all with children's books, and particularly the book, Where the Wild Things Are, mm -hmm. the name of her website is 
will eat you up. We love you so. Mm-hmm. And so that's a line. I love it. That's a line from where the wild things are. Yeah. So yeah. So I, I love that Shannon. That's the name of her website. We'll eat you up. We love you so. And I want to, I want to mention specifically a blog post that you did um, that was really impacting to me uh, this morning. I was reading it, juggling the standards and ambitions of modern parenting is the post. You did that this summer and it, it, you were just talking about your chapter in there, um, not worrying about what other people think. Uh And man, I think this is a big point, I think, for moms, um, for our listeners, that sometimes being more being more environmentally aware and less materialistic means that we are making choices that don't yeah. feel like we're measuring up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. Things like like you wrote about your your family coming, and you're like, my house isn't as, as clean as I want it to be, and um. My teenage son is going to, we're hosting his pasta dinner for his cross country team, Mm -hmm. a bonfire and pasta dinner uh, tomorrow night. Mm -hmm. And I have been stressing about, especially since COVID, the lack of upkeep we've had. We've not had Mm -hmm. people over the lack of, lack of upkeep on our deck, you know, Mm -hmm. our, our mowing, our landscaping, you know, the, the furniture around the fire pit, because we haven't used Mm -hmm. it in ages, right? It's decrepit. And I'm sitting there stressing, like, I want to go buy some better chairs. I want to go buy some better furniture. And I'm reading your post thinking, no, let it go. That is not a wise environmental choice. And that puts such strain on me as a mom, just trying to measure up. So I love that perspective. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that we all struggle with, you know, that keeping up with the Joneses has existed since the beginning of, you know, humanity. Um, I think it's far harder now in the day and age of social media, no matter how polished, no matter how unpolished uh, maybe some of the people you follow are, you're still only going to see like the good parts of people's lives. And not just because you're trying to hide it. Like I don't want to embarrass my kid by putting their meltdown on social media. That would be wrong for them because that's not my choice, you know? And I do, I write about my own personal struggles so that people can see, you know, it's, this stuff isn't always easy. It's not always fun, but that's true of parenting period. Right. Um, And that's, that's why I wrote that post because I wanted people to know, like, I am not some, you know, angelic being who does not care what other people think. Like, no, I care what other people think. Of course I care what other people think. Um, But I think trying to find ways to like flip that around or to be like, "Mm, no, I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna push back against that, that line of thinking is really valuable in so many ways, because, you know, you and and this is a skill, right, that parents can develop, like, so much my book is not just about developing your kids skills, but your own, including mine. Um, You know, that's a skill you can pull in when your friend is like, oh, my kid got into Harvard, where's your kid going? You're like, they're going to the state school because that was the right school for them, um, you know, and and having a much more healthy attitude towards this, you know, more, more, more of society that wants, quote unquote, the best for our kids, which may not even always be the best, you know, not every kid should be in like a super high pressure, you know, super workaholic college, you know, path or, you know, should be, you know, wanting to become a lawyer or a doctor. 
lawyers and doctors are great, but that's not all we need. And so um, there's a great book I've been reading called Lessons from Plants with, uh, that's by a, um, a plant biology professor at Michigan State University, um, Bronta Montgomery. And she talks about what we can learn from plants. And one of the things she talks about is the diversity aspect, right? Um, is that plants thrive because of the, you know, a monocrop, a crop where everything's the same is not healthy. They thrive when there's diversity, when there's, you know, some plants that are really tall and some plants that are really short and some plants that produce nitrogen or grab, take nitrogen from the soil and some plants that break down really quickly and die really quickly and bring it back into the soil. And that's true of us too. If we're all trying to be towards this mythical standard then we don't have the diversity we need. We And then that just perpetuates this toxicity that says like that you have to be more, more, more. And then everybody feels like crap, including our kids. Yeah. Yep. I love that. Yeah. Alrighty. Yep. Shannon, is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with that you haven't already gotten to talk about today? Yeah, I think I've, I've talked about it, but just to sort of sum up, and I realized this after I wrote the book. So, you know, the confession here. Um, sort of the four things that I found useful for thinking about how people can have a big environmental impact is, like I said, small actions with big impacts, especially ones that either you can build on personally, that build skills that you can use later on, or that other people will notice and normalize those activities. Um, uh, explain, uh, expand the conversation. So talk to your kids about why you do stuff, or if you can't do those things and want to, what's keeping you from doing them? Um, you know, why did our city choose to, uh, not build sidewalks here? You know, um, why, why is it hard to go to the grocery store and buy something that doesn't have plastic packaging for God's sakes? Um, <laughs> that's a big one. Um, make, uh, change the system or shift the system, find ways that you can, change that system or you can influence that system so that it makes it easier for everyone and uh, connect with others, you know, become friendly with your neighbors, work with groups, uh, be connected with the community. And because we can't do any of this by ourselves, we have to do it with other people. That's, oh, that's, I love that addition, that piece, that addition. Yeah. So important that that impact, creating an impact on the world can't be done well in isolation. No, yeah, and not at all, or maybe even badly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good point. (laughs) Yeah, so good. So Shannon, this has been an eye-opening conversation and a super important one. And I just want to thank you for taking your time out um, of your busy day to talk to us and inform our listeners of a topic that can be scary because it's unknown to a lot of people, um, but so, so important. Uh, so thank you for being with us today. Thank you um, for the opportunity. If you'd like to connect with Shannon, you can visit her website at willeatyouupweloveyouso.com. We'll also put her social media handles in the show notes and a link to purchase her book in the Brainy Books tab of our website, in addition to in the show notes. So thank you so much for listening today. If you loved our show, we would love it if you would leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you would rather watch us, we are on YouTube. You can follow us on social media at The Brainy Moms. So look, until next time, we know you're busy moms and we're busy moms. So we're out. See ya.